Hello, this is Deanna Latimer-Hearn, and you're listening to the Culture We Speak podcast, a show promoting awareness and understanding of cultural and linguistic diversity. On today's episode, Using Language to Educate, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lakeisha Johnson. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be chic. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is the culture we speak. I'm here today with Dr. Lakeisha Johnson, who is an assistant professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders program at Florida State University and a certified speech language pathologist. She is also the director of the Village, the Community Outreach and Engagement Division of the Florida Center for Reading Research. Her primary research interests include language, literacy, dialect, and executive function development in African-American children. Dr. Johnson believes in building and leveraging research practice partnerships to ensure children from vulnerable and underserved populations obtain strong language and literacy skills. She has a passion for diverse children's books and runs a website, Maya's Book Nook, to help caregivers and educators use these books to promote language and literacy foundations. Welcome, Dr. Johnson, to The Culture We Speak, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking today. I'm going to start and kind of dive right in with the Maya's book nook because I know that we've done a little bit of collaboration there. So I think it's a great place to get started. Um, so I want you to just tell me a little bit more about it. What was the impetus behind its creation and why do diverse books matter? So Maya's book nook started really because I have an extreme passion for reading. I've always loved to read myself. And uh, maybe about 2017 or so, I started posting books that uh, were written by Black authors on my personal social media media pages during Black History Month. I was like, okay, this will be something cool. I had a lot of friends with young kids. So my daughter, Maya, who the website is named after, um, was around two. And, you know, people were often saying that I was finding so many good books by Black authors and I wanted to start sharing them. So every day I posted a different book, different author, and everybody loved it. And then 2018, the same thing, you know, and people kept saying, you should start a website, start a website. And I'm like, I don't have time for a website, but here we are. <laughs> so my book notes officially launched later that year in 2018. And it really is emerging of everything that I love. Um, it's all about diverse children's books and how to um, really promote strong language and literacy skills using those books. So like you mentioned, my background, I'm a speech language pathologist, just like you, but I'm also a reading researcher. So I'm really um, invested in how we can use uh, materials that are authentic, that are culturally representative to do all the things that we need to do uh, in order for kids to kind of have the best language foundations. And we know that reading books is one of the best ways to foster all those early oral language skills that are so important to make strong readers later in life. Having content that really reflects your identity and your experience, I think it's so important. Yeah, um, it really is. It really is. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of work that talks about how children are more motivated to read and more motivated to engage in reading for longer periods of time when the characters look like them and when they can relate to the characters. So we know 
that cycle of, you know, the more you read, you want to keep doing it, then your vocabulary is stronger. It leads to better writing skills and on and on and on. You keep reading more, you have more complex language. So all of those things, you know, kind of happen. And, and my book nook has really just been a way that I've been able to share our love for reading with lots of different audiences. So family, um, but also practitioners, people like SLPs, educators, school psychologists, anybody who's interested in reading and figuring out how to use books with kids, because I always say that, you know, there are a lot of really cute books, but not every book is a good book for an educational purpose, right? You know, exactly. Uh Or to teach a certain concept. So I really enjoyed how it's grown over the last four or five years. Um, The website has started to expand a lot more. If you check it out, there are things um, related to going beyond the book. Those are aligned storybook guides that we develop using evidence-based principles like dialogic reading. So all the things that you do before you read the book, during the book, and after the book, because... Yeah, it's so important, right? It is, Uh, and I think that's a great tool to hand to parents and SLPs. Absolutely, absolutely, because it's not just, one of the biggest things we can tell people is not just reading the words from the book. It's all the things you do while you're reading the book. So before, during, after, those also include uh, vocabulary words with child-friendly definitions, example questions to ask. Um, because so often we get into that kind of routine of just yes, no questions or simple WH mm-hmm. questions. So questions to ask and even some extension activities. So those are there. There's author interviews. There are also kind of language and literacy related tips. And um, and I love a good theme. I mean, yes, when, I was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> when I was practicing as an SLP, I did everything in a theme. So okay. um, I love a good thematic list where we can pull books all around a certain theme. And then I would use those books in therapy with all of my groups, right? So no yes. matter the group, I would still exactly. have the same theme with these central books that could kind of inform what we did over a two or three week period. I was going to say, it's so important to also introduce books that are diverse to all populations. So being able to read about other groups that maybe I don't belong to would be important just as much as reading about something that's reflective of my own culture. Absolutely. Um, So I think I love that you do that. I love the curated lists. I love all of what you're doing on there. So I'm definitely going to say that y'all heard it here. You need to come and get these books. But (laughs) I will um, include a link with this um, posting. And so you'll be able to go directly there and purchase your books um, directly from Maya's book. So perfect. So that kind of segues into, I guess, sort of the professional side of what we do, how can we further um, promote diversity in our profession? Because I think that's something that's lacking, one, in just the demographic representation in our field, but then also in the materials and the tools that we're using a lot of times. How do you think we can go about promoting more diversity? I think that there is still so much work to be done. I think that as our programs attempt to become more diverse. And I think a lot of programs are, are trying to do so, um, you know, and it, it will be a long process, right? It, it, it won't yeah. happen overnight that we'll have a lot, what we're at 8% uh, minorities currently in our field, um, what only 3% that are African-Americans. So it is uh, truly an uphill battle, but I think when it comes to materials and resources, I think when we start to become more aware of what is in our materials that we're using and who we see missing 
it really allows us to open our eyes. So when I have students that take a sociolinguistics class with me um, that I used to teach at my former university, they would see some of those things that we'd be going through when we're talking about language and society and culture and power. And then you start to think about the materials that you use in class, the materials you use in your therapy settings. You know, did those flashcards actually have a variety when it comes to the illustrations, right? Or was it only just white kids doing these things? Or stereotypical there, images stereotypical of other groups. Images, mm-hmm. right? Where it may be, um, where I remember one student noticed it was something happening and she was trying to put together a pro- maybe like some text cards or something like that, some picture symbol um, cards for people who aren't familiar with text. It's the picture exchange card system. But you essentially have a picture card that you can give to the child who may have limited verbal communication. And she realized on every card that she was trying to find, the educator or teacher person would be white and the child would be black it was kind of jarring to her that in all of the things that she found, it was always, you know, there wasn't ever a black teacher or SOP or whoever you wanted that adult to be. It was always this, you know, this black kid in need of this help. And so I think that when you increase your awareness, it allows you to be more open um, to even including all of those things and including more diversity in our material. So just the books that we use, of course, but also any of the toys, that we use puzzles, flashcards, exactly. all of the things. They right? need to be culturally sensitive as well. And then also reflective of different values and priorities. Absolutely. I think um, for me, I've ordered cards even online at times. And then when they arrive, maybe their emotions, et cetera. I find that a lot of the black and brown people are angry or have a lot of the negative emotions tied to them, whereas the white, the white children on the pictures don't. And that's extremely frustrating because just in using something like that, I'm reinforcing this notion that right. one group sort of tends to be this way and one group is another way. And so that that's extremely frustrating, too. So I think, like you said, bringing that attention to students in the program and those who are becoming professionals is so, so vital to changing yeah. the way that we see other populations and that we treat other populations. One of my favorite um, frameworks is from Ramonda Horton Eichert. Um, well, we're not important now, but um, if you look at the article, it's under Horton Eichert and Sharita Thomas-Tate and a few others where they talk about um, multiculturalism courses within the field of, um, of communication disorders. And they had kind of this three-pronged framework. So the first is awareness. So really that kind of self-reflection, that process of thinking about all the things and pieces of your own life that help to make you who you are, because, you know, like our, our cultural responsiveness is really a fusion of all of our past experiences, but being able to increase awareness to then lead to increasing knowledge, that's the second prong. So then all the things that you can increase knowledge around these different cultures, because of course, knowing that it's impossible to know everything about everyone, it's this exactly. continuous, this is yes. continuous process. <laughs> But then, say that again. <laughs> yes, it is. Never going to stop. We're not yeah. um, culturally competent. Learning. That's why so many are now moving towards cultural humility. Because competent. Push humility, too. I can't do the competent thing. You don't arrive. Yeah. I'm never going to understand fully what it is to be someone that I'm, that I'm not. I'm just not going Absolutely. to. Absolutely. So competent, by definition, has an endpoint, right? I get exactly. to a space and I got it. Yeah. And so it's awareness, knowledge. And then the third one in that um, framework is skills. 
which okay. I think is so important in our field because we have to have that cultural awareness to then have the skill set, right? So what are the culturally responsive practices that we can be using? And just one of them is around our materials, right? Like that's, I always start there because sometimes people say like, why are you so big on like books? One, because it's an easy start point, right? It is a very easy uh, kind of gateway for a person who may be feeling like, I know I can do more in this field or in my profession. It's a really easy place to start, right? Think Think about teachers too, as they're doing it, they're learning things about other cultures in the process. So that's excellent to start there. Absolutely. Um, One of my favorite quotes, Rudy Sims Bishop, and a lot of people talk about it, um, where she talks about books being mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. So first, work on the mirror, right? Have the children that you're working with, whether that's your own kids or kids that you're seeing for services, you know, they see themselves reflected, be that mirror. But then we expand, right? We expand and extend and have those um, windows and sliding glass doors to introduce other cultures and backgrounds and um, all sorts of things that will be able to just inform who they are as a world citizen, not just in this really small corner. Of exactly. The city yeah, that's so big. And I think that's a great quote. I mean, I think that's excellent to it's think about so it good. as a way to transport. It's so good. It, to- you know, the crazy part, she said that in like 1990. And here we are. <laughs> In 2022, and it still rings true. That part, do we? <laughs> yeah, going. I know it still rings true. So hard. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to make progress in certain areas, and I think um, that's a big one. But then you talk about the way that you go about educating students, for instance. Not all programs, um, CSD or Communication Sciences and Disorders programs, have multicultural components. You know, some of them are kind of infused, which is is one method of doing it, which is fine. But how is that being done? And is it being done effectively is the question. Mm -hmm. And so I really worry about the fact that many students aren't getting that same exposure. Um, And so how do you think that CSD faculty, et cetera, how do they go about improving or finding resources and supporting students in this type of work? I think it's a it's a huge problem area in our field. Um, one, because our clientele is constantly changing, right? It's changing with the, the world that we're in. And so we have to increase our awareness on so many different levels because it's no, undoubtedly the person you see is not going to look like you or have the same background as you, right? So there, there are large percentages of that. So I think that I saw this really interesting uh, presentation at last year's ASHA, the American Speech Language Sharing Association Convention, they had looked at a study and they surveyed a bunch of professors from universities, all different types, um, R1s, PWIs, HBCUs, Hispanic serving institutions, mm-hmm. lots of different ones. And what they found, which should not be a surprise, while professors feel like we're doing an amazing job infusing in our courses, we feel like we've just like taken off in terms of all that we're doing. We're infusing multiculturalism into our courses and, um, you know, things about how do we work with culturally and linguistically diverse populations. But then they surveyed students who were in those same programs and it was flat. They feel like over the last, because it was compared to, I think it was maybe, I don't want to quote the wrong person. Maybe it was out of Stockman, the first survey, and then like 20 years later, but it was flat. 
It was completely flat. Students did not feel like there was any change in terms of their comfort level and awareness for when they graduated from those programs. And so I think that it's really imperative that we all think about how we can ensure students are getting this information. The first thing is uh, one of my favorite yoga instructors says you can't teach what you don't practice. You can't teach what you don't do all that part right there. So everybody isn't well suited to teach about culturally and linguistically diverse populations because those aren't their expertise areas, you know, like that's not their niche. And so while they may be able to infuse by providing some case studies or having an example or, you know, giving a few things about this, but if that's not the niche area that you work with, or even not just you know, where you learned and spent some time really thinking about mm-hmm. relevant pedagogy, you can't yeah. teach a class. You're introducing more bias into it anyway, because you're you're giving the information from your own lens, which is then biased based on your experience. There you so go. That, that's a struggle. And one of the things that I did in teaching multicultural courses is I would have, you know, speakers come in and mm-hmm. let them hold the floor and let them discuss things that they find to be a primary issue in in their specific culture or in their intersectional identity. Um, And I felt that that took one, the onus off of me to be all knowing, which I cannot be. And then two, it allowed it to be an authentic experience and expression from the population rather than me saying, here's what that population is doing. Um, You know, I can't do that. I can't because then I'm just contributing to the same problem and I'm giving mm -hmm. false information or I wouldn't say false, but information that is not really representative of the population to my students who then go out and operate in this knowledge that's clearly biased based on my lens that I'm coming from. So, yeah, I agree. I think that that if they're not aware, if you don't have that humility or that self-awareness that, hey, I don't happen to have all the answers, Mm -hmm. then it becomes a problem in that infusion model. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm really, really excited. Next summer, my um, university is going to be adding in a multiculturalism course. We have not had one um, in a while, I don't think. Um, So it's it's exciting. And when it was there previously, because um, I mean, I, I work at Florida State University. I graduated from Florida State University 10 years ago. So when I was in the master's and PhD program there, they had a multicultural course as an elective. This is now going to be a course that everybody has to take. So we know the things that often happens too when we have courses on things like multiculturalism and social linguistics. Sometimes it's it's just the minority groups who take the classes. That's what I see most often. Uh Right. And so I think it's important for us as a field to think about how we can ensure all of our students are getting this information and getting it early enough within the matriculation through the programs that it then influences how they think about the rest of the classes, right? Yeah. So if you take the timing matters early, yeah, timing yes. matters um, for your practicum experiences. You know, being able to have that awareness before you go into these outside placements, you know, out of outside of the confines, um, you know, that are more structured yeah. inside mm-hmm. the school clinic. What do you what do you see on the outside? So I think we have to think about one, ensuring that they have a multiculturalism course or some course of that nature that allows us to talk about um, culturally and linguistically diverse populations. But then also where you have that course within the program so that it can then inform what people are infusing in the rest of the course. 
the timing is so important. And then also we need to consider what we're communicating when we position those courses as either electives as sort of on the periphery of our programs. I know Stockman mm -hmm. Bolton Robinson talked about that. Like, how do you teach it and how do you infuse it? Is it just one class meeting that's talking about multiculturalism? Because that communicates to the students that, hey, this is on the periphery, this is over here. It's not as important as what we're focused on. You know, it doesn't center on the idea that diversity is real, it matters, and it's going to be, you know, you're going to encounter it. Mm -hmm. um, so I agree, the way that we position those courses, the timing of them, et cetera, and whether or not they're actually required courses communicates tons to our students. And I feel like in a profession where we're communication, you know, experts, right. we should be aware that this non-verbally, you know, that when we're, we're non-verbally telling students something about the importance of diversity when we, you know, sort of have this as, yeah. oh, this is an add-on or this is something you can do if you're interested in it. Um, we're communicating tons to our students. Mm, that's such a good point. And I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that's really an amazing point because that is the messaging when it becomes, oh, there's this one unit or one module, or it's almost as if it's an afterthought. And we want to ensure that they're aware that this is this is a huge part that will inform how you respond, how you assess, how you treat, how you do everything as a professional. Hmm, that's really good. It's a global majority. So we're, we're taking the majority of the world and then putting it into this little piece of the class or this little moment, right. you know? Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think that more programs need that. Um, and I think there could also be oversight above that too, um, in terms of ASHA, you know, our national organization sort of over, the oversight they have on whether or not these courses are required or how they're required, et cetera. I think absolutely, so absolutely. So there's between, a lot to be done. Yeah, between ASHA and CAPSID, I think that, that you know our governing organizations have to say that um, it's important and it's a part of our big nine, right? Maybe we move the nine to ten. Like this is another area and component skills because it's in our scope of practice. It's in everything else that we're supposed to be doing we're supposed to meet benchmarks in this area so how it do affects it? every one of us no matter where we practice we're going to come across someone who does not fit into our exact identity so mm -hmm. absolutely no, great points um i want to talk a little bit more about your research and how you became interested in you know african-american dialect and everything else that you're kind of engaged in with reading and how those kind of intersect i kind of fell into research when I, um, I did my undergrad, I'm from South Carolina, did my undergrad at South Carolina State University, uh, and then ended up receiving a um, scholarship to come to FSU. I knew nothing about Tallahassee. Knew, I'd never been to Florida before. Okay. And I thought I was moving to like Florida, Florida, like a beach right there, Florida, palm tree there, where that's not Tallahassee, right? The lies they told. <laughs> that, 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 true lies. And so, well, actually, they just never told me. And I didn't. Yeah, really so look, you just decided. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was before like people were going and, you know, doing like 15 tours to like, nah, I just said, oh, for free. Great. So I was on a language and literacy training grant. And that was really my first opportunity to learn about research. So um, after the first year on that training grant, and I, was, I, I really decided that I wanted to do a master's thesis. And so I was really interested in vocabulary at that point, and mostly in vocabulary in children growing up in poverty. We know like the connections between vocab and language skills and academic outcomes, that kind of a thing. And it really kind of made me, you know, really feel like I want to learn more about this research stuff. So I decided to essentially keep going to school. 
So I went straight through. I did. I was doing these part time. So um, I was practicing as an SLP part time while um, starting the PhD program. So I went straight through. I still got my CF and did all that stuff Um, because a lot of times people will, (laughs) you know, a lot of times researchers will skip the clinical route and getting their teams, but just go in. But I wanted to ensure that, you know, when I'm in a classroom talking to students that I have practical experience. I was part-time with a caseload of 45 because there's no cap in Florida, right? There's no cap in many places, but yeah. <laughs> right. So That's a whole other problem. <laughs> and, you know, having that many students, I, I really wanted to have those types of experiences. So um, I continued on another language and literacy training grant, and I really wanted to learn more. I became fascinated around language and reading because... Um, where we were located and a lot of the work we were doing in the schools were often in Title I schools with Black and Brown students or students who were, um, you know, lower, lower SES. And I was so kind of fascinated, one, even thinking about my own family, you know, like in terms of differences in dialects. And then in the schools that we were in, you know, you could have some kids that were, Speaking, you know, what we would consider academic English or mainstream American English, general English, whichever term you prefer, but then also having some people who sound just like I do, right? So I'm from South Carolina. I can code switch. I mean, but I was really interested in how come everybody doesn't do this? And so I have people even in my family where it's siblings raised by the exact same parents and we're like, how did how you sound like that, but they sound like that, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, my dissertation was really looking at what what are kind of the underlying skills um, that may cause a person to have some more more or less dialect awareness, right? So Mm -hmm. whether it's things like um, executive functioning or phonological awareness, I was really, really intrigued in that because of the uh, research around bilingual populations and kind of that cognitive advantage when they're able to go back and forth between languages, I was interested to see if executive functioning um, had a role to play in why some students learn or why some people code switch or dialect shift and why others don't. So that kind of helped me get into kind of the, the research area and it's really been fascinating, you know, as, as as the tides have turned, right? Because at that point, this was 10 years ago, it was very much around this code switching, code shifting. And now, of course, even when I'm talking about some of my older work, you know, I, I talk about it as also, I don't try to get anybody to code switch. I'm never going into a session in one, as an SLP, I don't treat dialect, right? Yeah. So you there don't, have but to, some of them do. <laughs> so number one, we have to first I'm ensure to. that, yeah, but we have to first <laughs> ensure that the people we're working with, the client or student is a person with the language disorder who also speaks a dialect. Because yeah. I think we've gotten to this point of where our students feel like it's this dichotomy, it's this black or white, there's no grayscale kind of, either it's dialect mm-hmm. or it's a disorder. And that's not the yeah. case. You know, Mm -hmm. there can be this middle ground, there can be disorder within dialect, right? And so, but even talking about it now, I like to talk about a lot of the work that I do in terms of how do we help increase this linguistic power that our Black kids have, right? 
So I talk with them in and even in conversations with the students that I, I used to work with. And, um, you know, it would be about you have all these amazing things you can do with language. Right. And for a lot of them, they weren't even aware that there were these different ways that you could change things and different, you know, so increasing these metalinguistic skills around language. And I'm giving you another superpower, right? So you already have this ability to do all these things with language. If you are a child with a true language disorder, so I'm going to help you take what you're already doing, right? Whether that's the AAE you're using. How can we also then learn this other skill? Because you got to get through the school system. But I think that it's important for us to know that the onus is not on the already marginalized person to need to coach it, to need to do all these things. And because I'm never going to tell you, you need to change how you talk. I'm never. It's part of your identity. It's part of yeah. who you are. And I think that the lack of awareness among educators, you know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of language difference and language variety, et cetera, right. is problematic. And all of what we kind of have discussed about communication sciences and disorders programs also applies to the field of education. You know, they're not required to take courses on linguistics or um, some of these diversity things that mm-hmm. we're talking about. And they also have largely uniform demographics in the profession as well. Not quite like our field, but you know, so I think that um, again, the onus doesn't need to be placed on the on the child. Like you said, it needs to be on the professionals who are supposed to be quote unquote Absolutely. support. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what what can I arm you with, you know, to ensure that you're successful within this place, but also to ensure that you know that what you bring to the table is valuable. There's some some really cool work um, by April Baker Bill with like just when we talk to kids specifically about the languages they have, right? The language systems and, you know, that's a part of our culture. And it it is so important to be able to help them understand the importance of it. So then they get to choose, right? Like, you know, you get to do these things um, for school, right? I'm arming you with the additional things that you need, but you then get to choose what you sound like orally. And I think that part is is extremely important. And when children, I think, are given an opportunity to understand language, the ways that languages can be different, you'll have kids, they they don't know anything about AAE, right? They don't know. They fluent in it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. they will. We trying. We trying. Yeah. It's all of those parts, I think, that make it so important because then we we help increase even awareness in terms of parents. Right. Like because you, I remember being, you know, being like that Ph.D. student, but I was also that fresh, newly, uh, you know, SLP. And I'm in meetings talking with families and I'm like, well, so and so is a dialect speaker. And we're like, we don't speak dialect. And I'm like. No, I can't tell you how many times in a presentation I will have a person interrupt on AAE, in AAE, and say, say, you know, that ain't real or whatever else they need to say. And it's like, but you're using it to refute. Right, right. Yeah, it's very frustrating, the lack of awareness. all that we have to unlearn, right? We all have Mm -hmm. so much to unlearn as a society around language, especially um, dialects that have been as stigmatized as AAE. There's so much to unpack and unlearn. And I think that what I try to impart to to both educators and SLPs when I'm doing sessions around this is that, one, it's important for you to increase your awareness. But two, these strategies, these culturally responsive strategies that we're talking about, 
every kid can learn from them though, right? Like every kid yeah. can learn from these skill sets around being able to play with language, manipulate language. And recognizing that people use them in different ways. I think that should be incorporated into our programs already. So when I'm sitting in an elementary classroom, I should be learning that people in this region sound a little different or people from this background may be talking another way or the people who come from that country mm-hmm. also speak English, but maybe speak it differently. And this country speaks a different language. You know, like we should be exploring that. And I think that mm-hmm. it goes over into Spanish too, because which which dialect of Spanish is being reflected and, and yeah. respected? And then how do we, you know, move away from that? Because there's so many varieties there too. And especially the way that it's become a prominent language in the U.S., um, how do we then value all of those varieties as well? So that should be awareness that's sort of baked into our educational program from the beginning. But it's, I love that. It's, I love it's not. Yeah, it's not, though. But one of the ways it's so easy to do it, it takes us right back to books. Because if we think about the books that we use in elementary classroom settings, even preschool, pre-K, we can even talk about what we're doing when we change our voices, when we're being a character, right? The things exactly. that are in quotations, when they're mm-hmm. different characters that speak differently, right? There are different words that are used that have different meanings. There are all those things that are helping children start to think about language in different ways that we as the adults in the spaces can add to the conversation by saying, yeah, well, so-and-so is from this part of the country, so that's why this happens. Oh, and yeah, we never call it pop. We call it soda here in South Carolina, but you know, in this place, it's called XYZ, right? There's, there's so many, and that's like surface level. But there's no, so I know, many, but that would yeah. change a lot. I've gotten referrals. I got a referral for a student um, who spoke a British dialect of English. Um, he used the word trousers in class and the teacher was upset about this and referred him for speech and language therapy. So so when things oh, yeah, like yeah. that are happening, it's like, how are we sort of pathologizing this child's use of a very legitimate dialect that his community uses? Mm-hmm. You know, why is this a problem? But yeah. yeah, there's so much work to be done in that area. It's some days frustrating, but we'll press on. What do you think that students can do, current CSD students, communication sciences and disorders, for those who aren't part of our club, um, what can those students do to demand or to promote this idea that they need multicultural education? Oh, I think I think that there's a lot that they can do. I literally just had a conversation with some students because they were talking about the the lack of diverse books in our um, in our speech and hearing clinic, and I'm like, so y'all need to say something. It doesn't mm-hmm. need to come from me. I don't I don't use the clinic. I don't service clients, right? Yeah. I, I don't supervise. <laughs> It's not me, it's y'all. It's not me. So, you know, there's this conversation, I think, that we we can do to empower them to to say more and to to speak up when they notice those kinds of things. So all of our programs have budgets around materials. Who's to say that we need to buy another click-clack move? And so I think that we can empower our students to speak up when they are noticing things. I think that we can um, empower them to join those faculty committees when they can. Just a quick note regarding the quality of our audio. You may have noticed some background noise in the previous section, and there's more up ahead. This was due to some yard work being done near Dr. Johnson's home. So we make a quick jump to the final questions in order to wrap up the discussion. When did you realize that your culture or language is different from mainstream? And how did you learn to embrace and celebrate that difference? 
you know, it took it took a while. I grew up in rural South Carolina where everybody was kind of, you know, in terms of the environment, right? Um, Through elementary, middle school, it was all Black people, all kind of same, you know, SES kind of. We didn't know we didn't have. My my family, they they made it feel like we had all we needed, right? I didn't really realize that there were a lot of different types of people and families and family units and that kind of a thing until high school when two schools got merged and one of the schools where a lot of students' families were from the local Air Force base. Okay. Of course, widened up the diversity. So I didn't really notice until then. So I think the other part about when I really started to realize that there were a lot of differences, although I went to an HBCU, you know, that's a part of the awakening so often into that appreciation for who you are, but also this outside world, right? So you have kind of this safe bubble of people who are like you, but also the expansiveness of Blackness that I found at the university. We had a large population of students from Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. And one of my um, sweet mates was a Trini, and it opened my eyes to just this whole Diversity. other way of being yeah. Black. Right. Yes. There's so much diversity that people overlook. So much. In blackness. Yes. Even like I live an hour from Charleston, South Carolina. I watched Gullah Gullah Island on TV, but I wasn't from anywhere near that area. And then when I got there, I'm like, I can't understand a word you're saying. Right. It took a (laughs) little bit of time for me to get Mm -hmm. used to even their the dialect. You know, the the Gullah Geechee dialect. It took a little bit of time because. It is so completely different from what I was talking, this, this mix of kind of AAE and Southern white English, right? So I think that it's so cool that those kinds of experiences really help to shape and mold who I am to kind of answer your second question around how did I find this kind of, um, I think, pride around culture and language. I think that I really started to just I read a whole lot in undergrad. I, the books um, again. Books, right? <laughs> books. Uh, and then I was always surrounded by books by amazing Black authors. And okay. so Maya Angelou, my grandma, was one of those praying, praying church grandma. The only other books other than the Bible in our house was like poetry. So Maya Angelou, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, those were the kinds of things I grew up around. So when I then got to undergrad and had my mind just blown by like the canon of black literature, it completely blew my mind as I was like taking all this in. So I think that that really kind of helped to inform who I I am now. And even over the last like maybe three years, I've even gotten more older, I think about who I am as a researcher. I used to say for like the first five years or so after I got my PhD that, you know, my name is Lakeisha Johnson. My research interests are, um, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse populations and language and, and reading development. That's not all the way true. Yes, I'm interested in culturally and linguistically diverse populations. That is not my expertise area. I can't go beyond the African-American experience. Right. If you ask me about um, bilingual populations, Spanish speaking populations, there is not a lot that I can give you outside of best practices. Right. 
So I've even become like, no, my research centers and focuses on, on African-American children. The work That's that enough. I do centers mm-hmm. African-American English. I literally, I think, said in something we were introducing ourselves, like, oh, yeah, all I do, everything I do, it's all around Black kids. That's what I do. Yeah. And it's legit. It's, it's legit in and of itself. Yeah. And, and I think that it informs who I am. So even the work that we do within our local community here in Tallahassee, I'm the director of the village, which is our community and engagement division for the Florida Center for Reading Research. Okay. And SDRR, in terms of the reading world, is, you know, a pretty internationally known organization with these people who are doing amazing work around theory that informs how children learn how to read, how do we best teach kids how to read. And they do some really, really amazing work. But the village is very much interested in how do we take all that information, all the stuff we know, theory, hypothetically, how do we have that make an impact in our local communities, especially where there are such disparities, right? There are huge disparities in what we see a lot in college towns where there have been research harms in the past. Mm-hmm. So our work has really been about centering the needs of the local organizations and partners that we work with. So research practice partnership, and I get so much joy from the work that is directly related to these kids this school year, this teacher this year, this family right now, right? As opposed to, um, we, and we need, the, we need the other research. We need it all. But I am very much invested in those research practice partnerships and how they can help move our local community forward. Yeah. Awesome. So last question then, how are you supporting the same sort of value and identity in your child? How do you... Oh, wow. How am I I supporting this identity in my child? Um, Well, of course, it all comes back to books. I think it, but it's more so I I try to curate what she takes in, right? We are very, we carefully curate what our child is allowed to take in. And so she's very, very much confident in who she is as a young black girl. She is blackity black. Maya will tell you up and down. I love my black skin. I love this. I love this. Mm-hmm. You know, she, so what we, what we've tried to do is we've surrounded her with media, with books, the stories that she hears, the people that were even around, you know, in terms of her hair, her, her everything, the clothes she wears, right? This don't always have something with this message, right? Yeah. You know, she threw a pin on her backpack that has black girl magic on it. I leave a note sometimes in her lunch. I'm going to hashtag sprinkle your magic everywhere, right? I constantly remind her so that then she's getting that reinforcement because there's going to be so much that comes from all over, right? From all over. And so it's always been extremely important for us to ensure we're just surrounding her and curating an experience for her to where she finds so much value and yeah, she's learning about other cultures. She loves and appreciates learning about. Shmaya knows more than I knew about a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I still, and I think that's the other importance of like children's books. We learn so much together. Like there are people that I knew nothing about that I've learned reading books with her. And I think that because of those opportunities, 
she has a different worldview, much different than what I had as a rural South Carolina growing up in the country. Look, growing up in the country, <laughs> you know, kind of a kind of a vibe. So I think that that part is, is really important to me. So then she she yeah. goes out armed, knowing, okay, she's confident in who she is. She respects everybody else, but she is going to yeah. always root for everybody. She's empowered. Yeah, she's empowered in that. And I think yeah. that is huge. I think there's so many messages that come against our children that we have to do that. Like you said, we have to be proactive in supporting their identity and supporting their um, understanding of who they are and where they come from. So that's beautiful. Thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing all of these wonderful insights uh, with the audience. It's very much appreciated. And I hope that we can maybe continue the dialogue in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm sure we could talk for another hour. I know, right? (laughs) This was so good. I love it. I love it. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. have just listened to The Culture We Speak with your host, Dr. Deanna Latimer-Hearn. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Lakeisha Johnson and Tataja Sparkman for the original lyrics to our theme music. Catch our next episode, where I interview Miss Yolanda Lutke of Higher Expectations for Racing County. Be sure to subscribe on theculturewespeak.com to keep up with our latest work.